What up, UFC fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Calf Kick Experience. We're here, Calf Kicks After Dark, 11-11 actually, make a wish, Central Time, Gage. Shout out to John Wayne Parr for letting me slip into his Instagram DMs today and also shutting me down. But on the bright side of the Australian coin, shout out to Ty Tuivasa. Gage and I are going to do a little shoey here with some seltzers for the boys. The prettiest sound in the world. I got a black old boot here. Oh, pour a little beer in there. Cheers. That was not pleasant. That was not pleasant at all. I swallowed something that was not beer. I'm still spitting boot off my tongue. But Ty, you're a goddamn legend. The Calf Kick Experience loves you. Australia, send us your UFC fighters. We want to interview them. But I'm still fucking, fucking jacked up on Mountain Dew from last week's freaking main event, the UFC 264. The card we've been waiting for. Gage, give us your initial reaction. How did everything play out to you, man? That was crazy. Talk about everything that we wanted and then more. That card was fucking phenomenal. That card was everything that you could have hoped for. That was $60 well spent unless you're there just to watch the main event. Well, we'll get into that. But coming hot out the gate, our boy Sugar Sean O'Malley coming in looking like an absolute stud. Looked like he was Keanu Reeves in the Matrix. Didn't get touched and just laid it on Chris Moutinho. I mean, I went three and two. I know you went three and two. We picked up. I went four and one, son. Shit, I went. He went four and one. All right. He did better than me. But I picked the main event right. So fuck this guy. Zach, lead us into where you went right. And where you went wrong. I just got to say, I'm sitting here flexing my Tommy Bahama robe. I know there's, what is it, a Gucci robe curse in combat sports. Connor did it. Masvidal did it. We're about to see how it plays out for Tyson Fury after he gets out of his COVID camp. But at the end of the day, Sugar Sean O'Malley's kickboxing footwork had me creaming my pants on Saturday night. I was out of town. I probably shouldn't have watched the card. My girlfriend might get mad at me for knowing as much about these fights as I do. But at the end of the day, I ain't need to be wearing pants right now because the more I get into Sugar Sean O'Malley, the more I just get absolutely raging horny about just talking about fighting because that was just pretty. Gage said it last week, poetry in motion, if you've ever seen it. Gage, sweep me off my feet, baby. All right, big boy, come here. That fight, he touched him up in every way that you want to touch up your high school crush. You know what I'm saying? This guy was going in and now touching him up on the face, on the body, everywhere. His kickboxing looked phenomenal. Had him out cold on his feet, I believe, in the first round. And then, you know, Chris Moutinho got saved by the bell. So... This went to round three, and at the end of the day, it was just too much. I mean, I think it was a good call by Herb Dean. Obviously, he wasn't out cold, but he saved that guy, like Sean said, a couple years off of his life and his career from stopping that so early. No, absolutely. 
Sugar Sean was setting, I mean, career bantamweight records for strikes landed. Accuracy. It was too. Ac- yeah, efficiency. There was no reason to let that fight go on. And you saw DC ran up to Chris Matinho after the fight. He was eating an ice cream sandwich. His face was all swollen up. He was still looking good. Like, the green hair still looked fine. But, like, it's a young guy. That's his first fight in the UFC. He came onto the scene in a really big way. I'm excited to see where he goes from here. And Herb Dean probably did just save him a year on his career by not letting Sean O'Malley just bash his face in any longer. I have to say, though, shout out to Chris Motinho. That guy is tough as a fucking nail. I was about to say, this year we got to touch on Calvin Cater, Daniel Pineda against Andre Feely, and then Chris Moutinho. Those three are my toughest nails award nominees right now. Those dudes have balls of absolute fucking steel. But at the end of the day, things like Chris Moutinho's strategy was to pressure O'Malley, and he did a good job of it, minus eating all of those punches. But when Sean O'Malley had his back to the cage, the way that he was able to circle out and get out of pressure and make me feel like he was never in trouble at any point in that fight. I'm interested to see what Sugar can do in a five-round fight. But, man, he looked as good as he's ever looked on Saturday. And our parlay, our bets, everything we had to say, big balls in Cowtown, hit. I hate to say I told you so, but Gage, what what, what, what do you guys say about that? Uh, I just have to say, I've never seen somebody be on their back foot in an entire fight and just dominate. That is such a rarity in this sport. Usually the guy pressuring, I mean, he'll get touched up. Sure, if the guy's a better, his opponent's a better counter striker. But being a better counter striker is one thing. Now, being offensively dominant on the back foot in an entire fight, absolutely bonkers. Never seen that before. It was. It was a, a special, special moment. And, like, for me personally, that was the passing of the torch from Connor to Sean. I just I, – I have a different opinion on Connor McGregor's career, it sounds like, but that's obviously further down the road, it sounds like. I, I mean, I was, I was just talking about, like, the rise to superstardom. No, I – in terms of where you were going with that point, I absolutely agree. Sean O'Malley needs a ranked opponent. And, per, you know, I think Sean O'Malley needs to be in a five-round fight. I think he needs to main event a fight night or be – I don't think he's going to fight for the belt. And I'm not going to say anything about him versus Piotr Jan, but I like the Dom Cruz fight. If Cody Garbrandt decides to stay at 135, Sean O'Malley versus Cody Garbrandt makes all the sense in the world. Rob Font. Um, Rob Font. I think that's an interesting matchup just in terms of striking. After what Sugar did on Saturday, I think Pierre Dion's the only person in the division that I'm afraid to match him up against. Maybe Algerman, because I don't know what his wrestling abilities are at this point. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the UFC does with their Sugar show and the money train that comes along with it. But moving on, where I got wrong, I didn't – well, for one – I thought Irene Aldana was very good, and Yana, I picked Yana Kainetskaya. But truly, Irene. But truly. But truly, Irene came in five pounds overweight, so I think I should get a free pass on that one. That's a, yeah. big, that's a big weight miss. That's big time. Yeah. 
100%. She forfeited the purse, came out with the dub. And if y'all didn't know this, today's Monday. Today is July the 12th, 2021. It's a Monday. So we have all week for things to change throughout, you know, between when we make our picks usually. However, I lucked out to the fact that my girl came out overweight and, you know, she looked good. The grounded pound, some of the things that I said managed to manifest themselves. However, kind of where Gage was going is that a lot of that stuff may or may not happen if she is the same weight. But that was the fight I missed. That was the fight my Wi-Fi went out. Fredericksburg, Texas. Shout out to BFE. Shout out to Buttfuck Egypt. But shout out to good peaches and good wine, man. Good time. Hey. What about the... Uh, the Greg Hardy and two Tyavasa. Obviously, I took the Shoei because uh, Ty won it. Made me look like a schmuck. I mean... I honestly thought he was in kind of deep waters there before he countered with that left hook, I believe it was. But Greg Hardy just got caught with his hand down. You know what you know what Mark Jackson says? Hand down, man down. So uh, I I think Greg Hardy, he, he has some things he can work on, but he's still talented. I mean, he, he wobbled Ty, really wobbled him. No, absolutely. I think I kind of came in here wanting to make fun of you for picking Greg Hardy because I was going to say wife beating fuck and make fun of him all last week. And part of the reason that I didn't do that was a, because like we say every week, I don't want him to come find me, but B part of the shit that you said was very true. Greg Hardy has a good fast twitch. His jab is very decent. He did have Taitui Vassal wobbled. Tai Tuivas is just a very tough guy. He's used to being in that situation. That's why I took a shoey with a shoe I haven't worn in four or five years, and I may or may not have swallowed some rat poison. So if I end up in the ER, somebody better watch the fucking cap cake experience. However, my whole point here is that Greg Hardy just, you know, he's been doing this for longer than we gave him credit for. Still very young into the game, but he lunged in with his chin straight out and just kind of asked to be knocked out quicker than both of us thought it would be last week. But at the end of the day, I'll take that one home and I'll cast a check on the Tui Fossa by TKO. We both hammered down on the next fight, though. Tell me about the co-main event, what you thought there. You son of a bitch. I could have swore you picked Wonder Boy. But Mm -hmm. I I guess I got to go back and rewatch it and keep you to your word. However... I Go think, rewatch it. Yeah. Wonder Boy, he looked good. He, he did, but at the end of the day, he has no ground game. His grappling, his defensive grappling is all right, but it can't compete with a world-class guy like Gilbert Burns who competes in jiu-jitsu tournaments like ADCC and IBFF, you know, all these international tournaments and whatnot. Um I just, uh, I mean, we saw it coming, right? You know, Gilbert got him against the fence, took down, laid and prayed, you know, did a little bit of damage, but not enough for the referee to get him up, right? So uh, it wasn't the fight that everybody was wanting to see, which is unfortunate, but Gilbert played it safe, got the dub, and called out, you know, three of the top guys. 
I'm absolutely interested to get your opinion on that call out in a second. However, were you aware, you know, towards the end of that fight when Gilbert started landing strikes to what looked like the back of Stephen Thompson's head? Let me get your take on that. Uh, it The back of the head tr- strike thing to me, I feel like is like kind of the black eye in the rule book. It's like it goes unnoticed. Like, obviously you're not going to deduct a point for one of them unless it's just significantly and like blatantly egregious. Right. So when the guys do that, like they obviously don't mean to, however, like the ref, when the ref tells them they stop, then they don't get deducted a point, but how many hits can they get in before the ref tells them to stop? So, I mean, what do you, what do you think? Well, I got to say, because DC was the first one to point it out kind of on the live broadcast. And I saw it. You know, you absolutely see that Gilbert appears to be coming with malicious intent, hammer fist to the back of the head. But the part of it that kind of gets vague and the thing that casual fans miss, and maybe it's something that I'm just kind of exaggerating because our guy won. But if any part of your arm on that strike hits the ear, it's not technically the back of the head. So if he, you know, struck him in the back of the head and finished through and the elbow touched the ear on the end of it, I can see how the referee would allow that to continue. And at the end of the day, it wasn't TKO. He didn't get the knockout. Wonderboy recovered. You know, it's probably detrimental to Wonderboy's performance at the end of that fight. But I think 29-28 was a fair score with Wonderboy winning the third round, would you say? I think that's that, uh, probably more than fair to, to Wonderboy. I mean, I could have seen it being 30-27 all the way around. But still, Gilbert Burns did what he needed, got the win. You know, he even said in the post-fight you know, interview, he goes, boo me all you want. I had to do what I had to do to win so he stays in the title picture. True. And, you know, just kind of circling back, you made a very good call out. You know, everybody knows Usman and Colby have business. It seems that that's going to be done October, November. Nobody needs to call out Usman. Nobody needs to call out Colby at this point. So Gilbert Burns did the most sensible thing he could and called out Masvidal, who's the biggest draw, the red panty knight of the division. Leon, who's the seeming number one contender. And then, what, there was somebody else on the end of that, wasn't there? Uh, Nate Diaz. Yeah, Nate Diaz, who everybody and their mom is going to respect him for beating if he gets over on him with. But here's my thought on all this. He needs to fight Leon Edwards, and that's just the end of the day. Like, Leon still needs to prove himself. He hasn't proven shit. He might be 20-3 and three or whatever the fuck he is with very few losses. And number two in the division, he needs to fight Gilbert Burns to test out his skills and see how good if he's ready for a title shot. Cause I still don't believe he's ready for a title shot. He, he has three fight or he has one fight actually in the past, like two years with that no, one, no contest in March, but he, he still needs to be battle tested with the top guys. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying, especially we pick Fabian Edwards against Austin Vanderford. You know, we see Leon Edwards come back after like a two-year hiatus against Nate Diaz, who's primarily a striker. I think there's a lot for Leon to prove to the fans. 
I don't think he has shit to prove in terms of his standing as a contender. He's done everything he could do. He's got an eight-second knockout on his record. However, to the fans and to the people that really matter in this UFC sport, he's a Brit. I don't know if he can wrestle. I don't know if he can weather the storm of Gilbert Burns. And as much as we've seen Kamaru Usman fall in love with that right hand and as good of a striker as Kamaru Usman has become, if he can't wrestle with Gilbert Burns, he's not going to be able to wrestle with Kamaru Usman and he's never going to become the champ. I'd have to say one final point on Gilbert Burns. He is probably the only guy that's won around against Usman since Colby, since the Usman versus Colby fight, the first one. Yeah, I mean, he dropped Usman in the first round. And I'll be honest, if I'm not with every UFC fan out there, there was half a second where I thought we might see one of the better champs in the promotion give his belt over to somebody else for a second. Yeah, absolutely. But moving on to the main event, the red penny night for Mr. Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier, the third time the trilogy. What a dud. Or your thoughts? Uh, I think Connor got started quickly. I think he came out aggressive. I think he came out with bad intentions. But part of the thing about McGregor that I'm just having to give way to as much as I hate it is you really can't teach an old dog very new tricks in this game. It doesn't seem like he came out and – you know, in younger days, back when his career was on the skyrocket, that spinning wheel kick that he came out with to start the fight lands, it shocks the opponent. You know, he starts off on the right foot. He gets to lead the dance. He landed one against Dustin. It started off the fight, but Dustin never seemed phased. And then later in the fight, some of those kicks Connor was landing, the way Dustin was exiting, they were missing. So, you know, personally, I think, as badly as I wanted McGregor to win, after the way that Dustin beat the shit out of him on the ground, there was no way Connor was going to recover in that second round because Dustin was picking up on the things that he was doing on the feet. I think you bring in very good analysis on that. I mean, I I saw it coming. I knew, like in my mind, I knew it. I was like, Dustin's going to take him down. Like the first first go around or the second go around, actually, the last fight in January. Came out with the leg kicks, the calf kicks, beat up his leg. This time I was like, all right, he's not going to go for that because Dustin or Connor knows it's coming, right? And I was like thinking to myself, I was like, he's going to go for a takedown because that's what Connor was expecting in their second fight, right? Comes out with the takedowns, gets him down, grounds and pounds him, gets him into deep waters going into the end of that first round. Connor gets up, kudos to him. You know, maybe had a little confidence boost there. You know, unfortunate injury. But I just didn't see him winning that either way, even if he stayed up and didn't have that gruesome leg uh, snap. No, yeah. I uh, read an interview. I can't remember who was conducting it, but it was with John Cavanaugh, who's Conor McGregor's head coach. And he basically had said that they had trained for that guillotine the entire camp, and they were using it as a means of when Dustin would get in the clinch, when they were in those clinch situations to defend the takedown, to open up a way for Connor to circle out of that clinch situation and to get back around. I don't think anybody ever intended for it to be serious. 
And originally myself, I thought, oh, Connor probably hurt his leg early in the fight and tried to slam that guillotine early to win the fight without his leg. But I think that's given the guy a little bit too much credit at this point. I think Dustin kind of worked himself into a guillotine that Connor had trained for. He got too excited. Dustin said, I've been in Khabib's guillotine before, worked his way out of it, and then we just saw how good Dustin Poirier was from the top position. Um, to your point, like, I don't know, I didn't hear that, but I'm going to take your word as it is. The guillotine in my, in my personal, like, experience and what I've seen and what I've learned is like a last-ditch effort. It's like, you know you're going out, you do it early in fights when there's no sweat, you can get a good grip, but, like, you're giving up position. You don't, you don't, and you don't do this when you're standing or, you know, you're in control, this, this is giving the opponent the top position on the ground. And just in my opinion, it's a Hail Mary submission. Like, obviously if you're good at it and you know what you're doing, but you just can't give up the ground and the top position like that. That's honestly crazy. Especially when you don't, when you know you can't wrap both legs around to finish the position. So I, I thought that was absolutely moronic on Connor's, you know, part there. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, truthfully, given what we got to see, even though it was only a small sample of what both of those guys were capable of, especially both of those guys, I don't think we saw the best of Dustin, which was saying a lot considering that he looked very dominant in that fight. I want to ask you a question in a second. But, you know, at the end of the day, I just can't convince myself that if Connor doesn't break his leg, that he goes to the corner at the end of that first round and makes the necessary adjustments. That takedown looked like he was tired. And everything I said about him, uh, you know, changing his conditioning and making better decisions in terms of fighting a long-term fight just didn't seem to come to fruition for me. So I have a bad history. Nganu versus Mio, just 4-1, 4-1. Usman versus Masvidal, 4-1, missing the main event. Dropped a couple, 4-1 here, dropped the main event, and it just seems to be that next pay-per-view, I need to pick the person that makes sense and not the person I'm a fan of, which won't happen, wink, wink, but Gage, I'm tossing that back over to you a little bit. I've learned that. I learned that early on in this podcast that we started. I never pick people I'm personal fans of. I go off what I see. You can get unbiased opinion, even if I don't like a motherfucker. Just like we're about to give you this week. Let's move into... I was about to say. Let's talk about what we got going on this week. Islam Makhlchev. One of the guys we try to make... We talk about this guy every fucking week. I hope y'all are excited to hear about him because he makes an appearance on every fucking show. Every single week, we try to bring this guy up. Him? Every John Jones? single week. Am I missing somebody? Who else do we bring up? Hamza Chumayev. Yes. I was Good. about to say, uh, Hamza, Islam Makhlchev, John Jones, and... I think we're good there, man. Yep, and you know we 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 
We committed to cutting the P word out of here. We're not going to say the pa, pa, Paul. Uh, we're not going to say that word on here. So even though there's a press conference going on tomorrow, we won't give them any sort of publicity. No, fuck those guys. Anywho. Fuck um, those guys. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into it. Let's get into our analysis and our breakdown. This week, we got Gabriel Mowgli Benitez coming <laughs> in as solid 22 and 8. Veteran, veteran of the octagon, uh, coming in at five eight and a 70 in, 71 inch reach. Uh, his opponent, Billy Q, Billy Cartino, coming in at fifteen and three. Uh, also with a height of five ten and seventy inch reach, so pretty comparable there. Uh, let's go back to Gabriel. Um, coming off a win where he displayed a flurry of different moves. Come out and just absolutely dominate. Looking like a fucking whirly dervish. I don't know what the fuck that means. But he ended the fight with a knee to the body. And, you know, his kicks were on point. His hands were on point. His opponent, Billy Q, like I said, he's coming off a loss to Gap. <laughs> no slouch in his own right. Uh, looked good in the fight, but slowed down a lot of the body shots did him in, in my opinion. Other than that, he had a nice old big one streak dating back to 2016 before his loss to Gavin Tucker. Um, Zach, what are your initial thoughts? I'll get into mine a little bit more, but Billy Q, Gabriel Benitez, what, what do you, what do you see? What do you see, bro? Nah, shit, we lost Zach. Brother Gage, you ever seen Rocky? I have. You ever, you ever seen any sports movie where the good guy just wins? The good guy always wins. I, except for Apollo Creed. Except for Apollo Creed. And I just, I hate to base my analysis off of that. I really hate to say something based off of that. Especially because Gabriel Benitez is probably the better technical striker here. And Gabriel Benitez has some in- impressive finishes under his belt. But, excuse me, Billy Quarantillo's ground game. Something about Billy Quarantillo's awkward striking. And something about that kid's heart, man. Something about that kid's just, I say kid, he's 32 years old, 30-something years old. But just something about his desire to go forward and to win and something about his heart just makes me have a hard time picking against him. And considering I'm looking at a lot of favorites on the undercard and on this main card, I'm not willing to say that I want a favorite here to start the main card. I'm going Billy Quarantillo. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think Billy Q is a very good fighter. Don't get me wrong. However, I'm going with Benitez Mowgli. All right, pal. I just, I love what I saw from him. Even though there's only one win, he's on one five win streak. He had two tough losses. I just, I love what I saw from him. He came out. That flying knee to the body was disgusting. I just, I love how he mixes it up. Um, I'm about to pull up the odds for us here, Zach. Uh, Go ahead. Okay, here we go. All right, Billy Q coming at the plus 180 underdog. And the best odds for Gabriel Benitez Mowgli is at 190. 
So, I mean, I know it's a favorite. I like 190, minus 190. It's kind of high, but I'm taking Mowgli here. I just like his diversity. Exactly. I think he's a very good, you know, all-around, well-rounded mixed martial artist. I think his striking is very crisp. That flying knee you referenced was absolutely beautiful. But, you know, we talked about Chris Moutinho. Looked like a zombie last week. Ate everything Sean O'Malley had at him and just kept coming forward. There's just something about Billy Q that, like, I don't know. There's something. He's going to find a way to get it done in my head, whether it's with one of those loopy flying overhands that you don't really train for because nobody in professional mixed martial arts throws something like that, or whether it's a weird roll into, let me get you on the ground. I don't know. I like the guy. I have a hard time, I guess, separating being a fan from being a bet picker, but yeah, I'm I mean, Billy Q. I, I mean, I, I respect the pick, but one thing I saw in Billy Q's last fight against Gavin Tucker was as the fight went on, he started to, like at the beginning, he had nice tight combinations, and then once it moved on to later fight, he started throwing those loopy punches. And that's kind of, kind of what worries me, especially with a guy that throws nice, crisp combinations like Benitez. And, like, he, he, there was a different – there was an obvious difference. I don't know if it was due to body shots or just the fatigue or a combination of both. But Billy Q kind of fizzled out for me when I was watching his last fight. Oh, I agree. I think – there's a lot of guys that come out with ground-heavy game and they try to impose their will early in fights. We saw Ryan Hall do a bunch of weird stuff against Ilya last weekend, but I don't know. I just – I agree with you. <clears throat> don't get me wrong. I think Benitez's striking is about as crisp as they come. I think he's very good. I think he's very clean. But I think there's something about the way Billy Q presents himself that's just a little bit awkward and a little bit not mainstream that makes him hard to train for that will have some of those punches present themselves like they wouldn't to less trained fighters. Uh, I think both these guys, they're 155ers, right? Lightweight? Yes, agreed. Yes, they're, they're, I, I mean, even though Benitez has been in the game for a while, I think they both have, like, some potential still, you know. I think they're both good up-and-comers. Wait, hold on, hold on. These are these are featherweights. Oh. I misspoke. These are 45ers. 145ers, my bad. Yes. So, I mean, I think this is going to be a good fight. I think the matchmakers really did a good job on picking here and making this matchup a favorable one to watch as, as a fan. Agreed. I absolutely agree. And – Things, I don't know. I don't know what our tendencies are, but I feel like things tend to go better when we start off with a good little headbutting, a good little disagreement to kick our main card off. I that agree. being said, I think we have another fight to talk about, Gage. Yes, sir, we do. Moving on, we have Hedolfo Vallea, the Black Belt Hunter. I mean, in that 7-1, previously unbeaten until his loss against Fluffy Hernandez, coming in at a stat six foot and with a 73 reach, inch reach advantage. 
in the middleweight class, that being 185, obviously coming off his first loss in MMA, has you know various losses in grappling, of course, but um, this guy is the pinnacle of the word expert on the ground in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Absolute stud on the ground. His opponent, Dustin Stolotsfus. Sorry for butchering that, pal. But he's coming in at 13-2. and two. The American, also coming at 6 foot, 75 inch reach. And middleweight, 185. He's coming off his second loss, um, Kyle Dawkins in his UFC debut. Um, Zach, what are your thoughts, initial, you know, what's going through your mind? Let's see. One of the things that goes through my mind almost initially viewing this fight is that Rodolfo Vieira's gas tank is very, you know, questionable. It's very sketchy. We've seen him tire out very early in fights. I think, excuse me, uh, Stoltzfus is a ground guy too. He's, he comes from a jiu-jitsu background. I believe he's also a black belt, although he's not notorious for competing in the competitions and having the success that Vieira has. He's not the um, black belt hunter. I, I just, I think that he has the repertoire to not, you know, we talked about this kind of with Gilbert Burns and Wonderboy. I don't think that he has the ground game to get a submission or to come out and mount an offensive Brazilian jiu-jitsu masterpiece, but I think he knows plenty enough about Brazilian jiu-jitsu to defend the submissions, and I think Vieira is going to come out heavy with ground game, looking for submissions, looking to get that first-round finish. I think Stolfus is going to fluster him. I think they're going to get out of that first round, and I think Stolfus has the advantage on the fit, on the feet, not on the fit. So <laughs> I had the advantage on the fit. On the fit. So in my head, I think Stolfus wins this one. I think Vieira is a good fighter. Don't get me wrong. I think there very well could be a first round submission, but I see my boy. I see an American, uh, you know, with the crowd last week, and I see us working one out here working out of the first round and finding success later on in the fight. It seems to be you disagree. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, I disagree. I couldn't agree with you more, though, on the fact that Vieira, um, his his gas tank is subpar. And, like, I think that he probably went back to the drawing board and tried to correct that. But one of the big factors that he can't really, you know, plan for necessarily in his gas tanks department is the fact that he's cutting a lot of weight. He cuts a tremendous amount of weight to get down to 185, which, you know, would turn otherwise great gas tank and stamina uh, to maybe, like, deplete it, right? So I just feel like, you know, that was an issue. I was initially going to pick against Hadolfo, but I just didn't see enough from Stolfus, honestly. Like, I... He, in his, in his UFC debut, he just got hung on. And I feel like, you know, if anybody could do that, of course it could be Adolfo Vieira um, doing that to him. And he just looked like out of place, you know. He just, he got laid on, not laid on, but, you know, the gr the grappling, the cage work. It was a big, um, 
a big like section of his game that he probably needed to work on. I mean, obviously, it remains to be seen if he does has worked on it, but that weight was an issue uh, to deal with for Stoffus. And, you know, just he got taken down too much, in my opinion. And I was like, all right, Hadolfo can definitely get him down if this other joker uh, gets him down. And then he's going to end it there. So it doesn't matter, like, in my opinion, what Stolfus does. He's, he doesn't have good enough takedown defense. And once he gets to the ground, it's game over. Hadolfo is just otherworldly. He's one of the best. Abu Dhabi champion in all the business. So, but... Let me. Uh, no, I think I, I think Hadolfo needs to consult with Doug Martin, the ex NFL player, and you know contest for the nickname Muscle Hamster. He's fucking ripped. He's a massive dude, and I think he will be able to impose his will, kind of like you were hinting at. I don't think Stolfus will be able to stay off of his back in the first round. I think he'll have to eat some shots. I think he'll have to you know, recover as the fight goes on, in my opinion. But I think just as the fight goes on, I'm so skeptical about Vieira's gas tank that I think those takedowns will get lazier as the fight goes on and Stolfes will be able to just stifle them enough to create success for himself in other places. Moving on to the fight odds, best you can get for Vieira is minus 225, which is quite high, in my opinion. And plus 200 for Dustin Stolfus. But let's take a look at some of the props. What do you think? Plus 180 doesn't go to the decisions. I mean, I, I say if you're going for Rodolfo, plus 180 is pretty good. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's, I'm, I'm sorry. Minus 260 is, doesn't go to the decision. Plus 180, I, I don't necessarily like that. Um... Yeah, I agree. It seems to be that everybody's saying it doesn't go to decision. Or excuse me, that it... Yeah, no, that it doesn't go to decision. But this is a fight that seems like... It just seems like a tease. Like, it almost seems too easy. Like, we're all going to question Vera's gas tank and assume that he's going to get that submission in the first round. But something about me tells me, something about this, excuse me, just tells me there, there seems to be some value with that. This fight does go to decision and I'm not completely out on the idea that Stolfis gets a 28, 27 victory with Vieira winning the first round. But, you know, it's a lot easier. Half kick experience. You make picks, you guys spend your money wisely, and don't bet the house if you don't have the house. But, Gage, back to you, amigo. What you got? I, I mean, I think that it's a lot easier to win another round by being on the ground and kind of half-assing it on the ground when you're tired rather than being in a stand-up fight. You can lay and pray and still win a round. You can't necessarily do that when you're standing up. So, I mean, it just really depends on how badly uh, Rodolfo wants it. And I think it was a good lesson. His last fight against uh, Fluffy Hernandez, I think he, he, he knows, like, he was better than him. And he had, he had a submission, and he wasn't able to finish it, and he gassed out. I think he went back to the drawing board and knows that 
he has to not gas out because then he's toast. Um, he showed it in previous fights. You know, the one before went to round two, did not look as gassed as he did in his previous fight. So, I mean, it's just, it depends on how well his weight cut went. Oh, I think in terms of Fluffy Hernandez, kind of like you said, he's not known for being a ground guy. Like, not really. And he ended up walking out with submission there, which... He was in deep water, though. He was in deep water in the first round. No, agreed. Agreed. He definitely was in deep water. But I think Stolfish, you know, for not being the name in the division that Alex Hernandez is, I think Stolfish is more known for his ground game. And he's better you know, more capable on the ground than Fluffy Hernandez was. So I'm not saying he gets a submission by any means, but I think he manages to keep himself out of deep waters against Vieira in this situation. I mean, Vieira is not even that deficient in the stand-up game either. He can hold his own. I don't like how he gets hit. He does get clipped. That's one thing I don't like. He takes, he absorbs some big shots. But I just didn't see enough from Stolfos to, like, warn, like, oh, you know, this guy has one-shot knockout power, which I'm sure he does, but, like, it hasn't been put on display yet. No, absolutely. I agree with you where in terms of my bet, you know, a lot of this card, I'll be completely honest and blunt, considering we're, you know, probably closing in on somewhere to between a quarter and a halfway through of this show. This card is not a better's paradise. This card is a horrible better's card. However, if we're going to look at this and you're going to bet Stolfus and you're going to ride with your homie here, H-Town Till I Drown, you're going to take him by a decision. I'm not assuming he's going to get a submission in any, any case scenario here. And I'm with you. I don't think he has the knockout power. I just think he has the slight enough advantage on the feet and the good enough defensive takedown to not keep it there 100%, but a good enough ground game to get up off of his back and to return the fight there when necessary, the pace, all of the above to, just like I said, 28-27. Very close decision. Maybe even controversial at the end of the day, but I'm going with Stolfus still. Who knows? We might have a whole card for the first time where we don't agree on a single fight. I hate you. I also hate you, and I hope I win. Eat rat poison and die. <laughs> Not really, but take me to the next fight, ho-ho. Okay, moving on. We have the little heathen, Jeremy Stevens, coming in at 28-18. and 18. Yes, he's a veteran of the octagon. Been in a ton of big fights, and is one of my favorite and most entertaining fighters that you will ever come across. Well, I hate him, so. <laughs> Coming in at a solid 5'9", the 71-inch reach. He usually fights in the featherweight division at 145. This time, this is a 155-pound bout in the lightweight division. He is also coming off a loss, tough loss, to uh, Calvin Cater where he got KO'd. And, that, and before that... Tough loss again to Yair Rodriguez, who is an absolute stud and arguably could have won that fight. Um, I didn't see that as a unanimous decision, but he hasn't won a fight since 2018. If you know anything about the show, I don't pick guys that lose. 
and are on losing streaks. Anywho, his opponent coming in at a solid 18-1, the gamer, Matsu Gamarat. He's as actually coming off his, well, actually, he's coming off a KO win. And before that, he's coming off his first uh, loss to Gumarar Kadadizale. I'm sorry, I fucking butchered that name. Anywho, I missed the uh, the height, 5'10", so he got an inch on Jeremy Stevens and equal reach with a half-inch advantage uh, in 70 and a half. This guy, pretty good. Unimpressive for an 18-1 record. You know, I think he only has two fights in the UFC. And, you know, he's just... I, he got dominated in this first fight. Really. I mean, he could have... He won one round, in my opinion. But, remains to be seen what he does in his next fight. Um, Jeremy Stevens. Like I said, man. He's just a brawler. This guy does a phenomenal job in performing and entertaining the crowd. Zach, what do you think? I said it earlier. I hate Jeremy Stevens. Who the fuck is this guy? I'm just not completely convinced that he's, like you said, he's a, he's a vet. He's been here for a while, but he's been doing it at 45. This is a 55 fight. He's a guy that relies on his knockout power, in my opinion. I don't think he's the full package. And I think at 55, I'm going to burp again. Excuse me. I think he has a harder time finding that one-punch KO. And realistically, looking at this fight, Gamrot has good wrestling, good offensive wrestling. But it's not offensive wrestling like you see the Dagestanis do, where it's stand-up, stand-up, face-to-face. Meet in the middle of the octagon. I'm going to out-wrestle you. I'm going to shoot like a, you know, like a freestyle wrestling match in the Olympics. It's, I see you loading up for this big punch, going to knock my head off, so I'm going to take you down with a single leg and dominate. I think Gamero is going to walk out with a 30-27 decision based on takedowns and ground control, and I think Jeremy Stevens cry-cry like a baby. I have to disagree with you here. I'm taking Jeremy Stevens. Oh, boo. I think he's just so tough. Like, he caught, he he gave up a nasty elbow to Calvin Cater. I mean, Calvin Cater ate a very good shot, in my opinion, when he knocked him out. Yair Rodriguez in that fight, he was close. He It's debatable. He could have won that fight, man. Uh, he, had, he showed great offensive wrestling. I think moving up to 155 is actually a good move for Stevens because he was missing weight at 145. Uh, I I love the brawler mentality. He's so tough. I haven't I mean, I've seen a knockout by Gamero, but I just like he looked small in his loss. And I'm not saying that he's gonna look big or look small against Stevens, but I think the experience here comes into play for Stevens, and he. There's one thing that Stevens has. He has a dog in him. He's a savage. He comes out and gives all he got to the final bell. Like him getting knocked out at Gallon Cater was not an indication of his character or his fight acumen at all. He got caught by a good shot, and I, I almost bet to say like, it's it's he's one of the hardest guys to knock out with your fist, absolutely. And that's why I'm picking him. I just. 
I think it's going to be a good fight. It's going to be a close fight. Let me pull up the odds for us, pal. You know, one of the things you said that I really cared for was that Jeremy Stevens is going to give it everything he has from the first bell to the last bell, which typically sounds like a compliment. But when it's coming from me and in the context that I'm giving it, it's not an insult, obviously, but it means I, I do mean it to play against him in terms of there's not a whole lot of guys who can punch as hard as they can for three rounds and either A, land successfully, or B, last through three rounds. So I just think Gamro's going to find opportunity. And I, I, like you said, God dang it, I'm trying to, trying to stay away from sand, like you said. But, you know, with what you were going for, uh, you know, his striking is not crisp as it could be. He doesn't have that knockout power, but I think he's a more well-rounded mixed martial artist. And I think Jeremy Stevens being a veteran, you think it's going to play for him. I think it's going to play against him. I think he's going to be predictable. And I think Gamro is going to have his number. However, show us the odds. We're looking at them. Tell me what you think. So plus 195 is pretty tasty for Jeremy Stevens. Uh, minus 200 for Gamero, which is not bad, but the fight doesn't go to decision coming at a less tasty minus 165, which I probably wouldn't take. I mean, I say if you're going to bet Gamero, might as well take the parlay with the fight goes to decision here. Uh, obviously, just for, again, minus 200 means you have to bet $200 to win uh, $100, and on the flip side, plus $195 means you bet $100, you win $195. So I like minus, or plus $195 here for Jeremy Stevens. I like his knockout power. I like his endurance, his toughness, and I think at $155, I'll very much play into his hands. No, I want to, uh, you know, we're leading up into the co-main event. We're about halfway through our picks probably at this point. So I want to let everybody who relies on me, my few friends out there that watch this show, to make bets for them on a weekly basis in terms of mixed martial arts. I only want one bet this week. It is going to involve three fights. It is going to be a parlay. And I will let you know at the end of this show. However, this card is just in terms of flip a coin very much could go either way in a lot of different places. It's something I would like to be more cautious in terms of betting on a fight per fight basis. However, looking at just straight picks here again, I think Jeremy Stevens is going to be predictable. And I just think Gamro is going to have, that trick up his sleeve that gets the fight done for him. I can't tell you what it is right now, but I, I'm imagining, I'm imagining, excuse me, it's probably not a punch. It's probably something crafty, standing guillotine maybe. However, I think we're done here. You got anything else to say? My final thing is I don't think Jared Me Stevens gets enough love for his ground game acumen and how well he does on it. He took Yaya Rodriguez down quite a few times, and he's shown the ability to take the ground, uh, the, the fight to the ground if he needs to. So, after that, I'm taking Jeremy Stevens. He got Gamro. Let's see 
where this main event and co-main event take us. Moving on, we have the ladies in the 135 bantamweight division. Marion Renault coming at 9-7-1. She is coming at 5-6 with the 68-inch reach. She is coming off four losses in a row and hasn't won a belt since 2018, which is tough. And I know I just said I don't pick fighters that are on a losing streak, even though I just did. I ain't picking her. I don't take chicks on a four-fight lose streak. Anywho, her opponent is Cupcake, Misha Tate, coming in at 18-7, former bantamweight champion in the UFC. Um, she's coming in at 5'6", with a 66.5-inch reach. Uh, she's been in retirement uh, for the past four or five years, I believe. She hasn't fought since 2016. Uh, which is lost to Raquel Pennington and another loss to Amanda Nunes before that. Um, just getting into kind of the breakdown of the fight here. I believe that, you know, Misha Tate was one of the top women in the entire sport prior to her retirement. Even after those two losses, she shows a complete game, is a complete stud. Like, she's in the top five women to ever play in the sport and do MMA. She is absolutely phenomenal. Her ground game on point, submissions out the wazoo. Her striking, great too. I wouldn't say it's her strong suit, but she's very good at it. Um, other than that, her grappling, fantastic. Uh, Myron Renault, she's lost some tough fights here in the past, but like her, her striking's crisp, but she fades. And she takes some big shots and has also been um, subjected to some damage on the ground, you know, via full mount and shit like that. Zach, what are your thoughts? I am absolutely a person who likes to take a stereotype and say, let me box that up kind of Monsters, Inc. style and shove it right up your ass. However... This is not a fight that I'm going to take any stereotype of myself and shove up anybody's ass. I'm absolutely with you. Renault is 44 years old. You know, I don't pick old fighters. I just don't do it most of the time. It just does not make sense to me, especially considering her counterpart is 10 years younger and is coming off of a break. Misha Tate is very unpredictable here. We could see her at the best we've ever seen her, we can also see her at the worst we've ever seen her, which, you know, wouldn't even necessarily be that big of a drop off considering the best we've ever seen her was at champion of the world. She beat Ronda Rousey. Her low point yeah, is probably not, home. I mean, her low point is not something to look at and be ashamed of. And again, at 34 years old, maybe she's out of her athletic prime. But she's not out of that level of hormone level to where she can't compete at the highest level of sport and mixed martial arts. At the end of the day, I know what I'm getting with Renault. She's fought in some very high-level, high-competition fights, like you said. She's lost all of them, and no disrespect. But if I know I'm getting somebody that's going to lose in the hype of the hype, Versus somebody who maybe 
will win because I've seen her perform on the biggest of stages. I'm taking the maybe. I'm taking Misha Tate. We haven't seen her in four years. I think, you know, she's been having kids. She's in a different stage of her life. But she's been in the gym for at least a year, at least a year and a half in my head. She's been training, and she's ready for this fight. If there's one she can win, it's this fight right here. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, her upside is just too high, and I think uh, Marion Renault's uh, floor is just not high enough, right? So I, I see it as, you know, Misha Tate was at the top of the sport. She beat the best of the best, competed with the best of the best, and didn't back down, you know, and she showed like there is a big, big drop off between the top and the women's MMA divisions. And then like the, the, the uh, contenders slash like top five, top four, like there's a big just like uh, skill disparity in my opinion. And even though Misha Tate hasn't fought in four or five years, she just has so much skill and has all the training that you just don't forget. The muscle memory is still going to be there, especially with her training. And I also think the UFC is going to push her. Like, I think the UFC, if she comes out, if Misha Tate comes out and does what she needs to do and finishes her, we could be seeing Misha Tate versus Amanda Nunes too, which could get very interesting very quickly. Obviously, I'm not going to ever doubt Amanda Nunes because she is a bad motherfucker. But Misha Tate also... Very good. And I think that uh, we need to get into the odds. Well, I, I just kind of want to go there where you where you were kind of leading us to. I think we'll probably talk more about it when we get to that UFC 265 card that's going to be in Houston. But Amanda Nunez is not known for selling pay-per-views, so I'm not sure that Nunez versus Tate 2 headlines a big pay-per-view. But tell me that's not a huge fight to bolster another pay-per-view. Where yeah. you have a big fight to headline. Misha and, you know, the name. Misha Tate is a huge name, especially for women's MMA. I liked what you said a lot about her getting the push. Because coming back and not, I mean, she's not a spring chicken by any means, but she's not old either. She's absolutely a household name. Somebody that UFC fans who have been following the sport for a while recognize. And I think if we can get her into title contention and into a big fight, into a fight with another name contender, that's a huge fight. That's that's something huge for money, huge for the UFC, something Dana's going to want to see. And I just think, kind of reminiscent of what I said about Stolfus, I think they both have good enough ground games here to where Renault is going to want to take this fight to the ground, but Tate's going to be able to stifle it. And I think Misha Tate's just that much better on the feet to where – I don't know if I want to look at a prop bet here for a finish or a decision. However, I do want to take the gamble on the fact that Misha Tate is going to outstrike Marion Reno here. I but mean, take me to the odds. Yeah, getting to the odds, Misha Tate coming in at minus 124, which is the best you can get, which is actually pretty fucking good. You know, Very good. Yeah. I mean – Obviously, it's a little sketchy that she hasn't fought so long, but minus 124, you're not taking that big of a hit if she does lose. Plus 115 for uh, Marion Renault. I just, that's that's too much for me. I think she should, if you want to bet on it, that's probably a plus 200, plus 250 kind of thing. 
but plus 115 is just not something that's tasty, you know, uh, in a betting aspect here. I think minus 124 is probably the best you can get, which it obviously is the best you can get, but like otherwise saying, like, I mean, I, I think that is great. And to kind of go off what Zach was saying, he was saying that Misha Tate's going to piece her up on the feet, which I could definitely see. But people are, I think Zach, especially, sleep on Misha Tate's ground game. She has nasty submissions. So I don't even, I don't know where Marin Renault goes from here. No, I, uh, to, to clarify, I appreciate you leading me into that, actually. I don't sleep on Misha Tate's ground game. I think it's very good. But I think that's where Marion Renault is at her best. I think if there's a fight to win here, it's on the feet for Misha Tate because she's just seems to be that much better stand up for me where the ground game is good on both ends. And I don't see a deficiency for either side. Um, I just think, however, here looking at the odds and the way they've shifted June 29th, Misha Tate was at 135, and July 13th, she's only at 130. So what that tells me is that there's not a lot of money coming in on this fight. The line is not shifting very much. A lot of people are hesitant to pick Misha Tate because they're afraid of the unknown. But here at the CKE, at the Calf Kick Experience, we embrace things we don't know. We embrace things that are going to hit. We embrace fucking greatness here, and we're going to show you guys on Saturday night. We wake up and piss excellence. I piss excellence in my fucking Honey Nut Cheerios for breakfast and eat them, Bear grill style. But don't hold me to that if you're fucking, what's that dude, General Mills. It's time for the making. Bruce Buffy the Vampire Slayer with his headband on. Take me into the main event. Yes, yes. We go to the main event. And we talk about... My brother Bilal. (laughs) We talk about Islam Mahakshev versus uh, Tiago Moises. Obviously, both guys coming in with stellar records. We're going to first talk about Islam Mahakshev coming in at solid 19-1. Probably the most feared man in the lightweight division. The hardest division on earth. The 155ers. He's coming in at 5'10", 70.5-inch reach. Headlining his first card, the Dagestani is going to have Habib in his corner. And this guy is going to come out wanting to make a name for himself. He's coming off a win against Drew Dober, where he made this man quit in the octagon. You've never seen shit like that before. He fucking destroys people's will. He also has a win over Dobby Ramos, who is a absolute genius on the ground and made him look like a little boy. His opponent, Tiago Moises, coming in at 15 and 4. He's coming in at 5'9 with a 70 and a half inch reach. He is coming off three wins against Alexander Hernandez, Bobby Green, and Michael Johnson. Obviously, Michael Johnson, very tough opponent. Bobby Green, also very tough. Um, I just think this is going to be a good one, but there's a reason why we talk about Islam Mahakchev. 
every single podcast is because he is a transcendent, transcendent, actually. Transcendent. Transcendent athlete in this. Transcendent. He is phenomenal on the ground. He takes Habib's style and perfects it. He has Habib in his corner. He wants to be Habib. He is going to be the next lightweight champion of the world. Zach, what do you think? I'm actually going to challenge myself for the next minute, minute and a half, however long I take here. Did not say the word Habib. Habib's a cool dude. He was champion of the world. One of the, I was actually talking to my brother earlier, and I'll give you a head start. I'll present the question and let you think of it. I don't even really know anybody who is in staunch contention with Habib for the best 155er ever. I just don't. However, my whole point here is that Islam is incredible on the ground. And I needed to make it known that we made accents. We did, we make a joke, but that was a Borat joke. That was not a Kazakhstani joke, but that was in reference to Borat. Islam's from Russia. He's highly respected here at the Kafka Experience, especially just because of his understanding of position. He has such great balance. I'm not 100% sure on the statistic I'm about to share, but I don't think Islam Makhlchev's ever been taken down in the UFC. And if it has, it was one or two times that he was pulling guard and looking to perform Brazilian jiu-jitsu moves. However, you know, kind of what I'm looking at here is that this is a matchup of two guys that are very good on the ground. Tiago Moises has a very good ground game, a very good jiu-jitsu game. So I think we're going to see both of these guys shoot for takedowns. Islam will land more than Moises. And I think it'll come down to who's better on the feet. I think Islam's better than Moises on the feet. And I'm just not very bullish. I'm not very confident on any of the prop bets that I've looked at here, except for maybe... I don't know the odds. Gage will have to take us there. But maybe over one and a half rounds. However, I am largely confident that even if it goes to a decision, Islam Makhlchev will walk out with a victory here. Kind of like Gage referenced. Yeah, all right. So the best you can get Islam Makhlchev is minus four, or minus 549, excuse me. And the best you can get Tiago Moises is plus 490 which is a sizable underdog here. Um, I think one thing that Zach hit on is that the, that uh, his opponent, Tiago Moises, is also a very skilled jiu-jitsu player. He's been doing this since he is eight years old. However, I, one thing that I find is these Dagestanis, they're not jiu-jitsu experts. They're ground-and-pound experts. And let me tell you, when a Brazilian Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy gets on his back and gets ground and pounded, all that jiu-jitsu pretty much goes out the window because you're getting smacked around. You're getting hit in the face. And I feel like that's one of the big differences. I mean, uh, the Davi Hamos fight for uh, Tiago, or not Tiago Moises, for Islam Makachev was another Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert in the sport. And... You know, that stayed up on the feet for most of the fight. And when it did go to the ground, Islam Mahachev really showed that his master of combat, Sambo, the world champion and European champion in combat, Sambo, 
really came through and showed what he was about. You know, didn't get himself in too many dangerous positions. And if he did get himself in a triangle slash armbar situation, he got out of it pretty quickly and continued to rain down ground and pound. Uh, also, how Zach pointed out earlier, I think uh, Islam Mahachev, he is very good and very underrated on his feet. He can stand on the, on the feet and, uh, you know, really land, land some clean, crisp combos that are very compact, straight to the point. I mean, he can hit you with a one-two down the pipe that can put some guys out. I mean, that's not to, you know, dog on Thiago Moises, who also has a very crisp uh, stand-up game. But I just... I, the Dagestani toughness is out of this world, and he can come back and from anything, really, and just change the entire fight by putting it on the mat. So I'm taking Islam Mahachev all day, even at the you know unfavorable minus four or five forty nine odds, man. I just like I, it's almost big balls in Cowtown for that poor of a. Oh, you know, is it? A big balls in Cowtown, big balls in Cowtown. This, I mean, this is what Sean O'Malley's fight would have looked like last week without the last-minute replacement of Chris Moutinho. If there's as big of a fight that I've ever been confident on, it's this one, especially because you look at the last fight, you look at what he did to Drew Dober, and then you look in the past, Armin Sarukian who's a rising contender, very good on the feet, very good with the Muay Thai. And Islam Makhlchev managed to control distance, control the pressure, basically control that whole fight. And, you know, Tiago Moises is dangerous. I'm not going to lie. He's on the back end of the top 15. But Islam Makhlchev's looking to make a statement here. One of the things, you know, if I'm going to caveat and play devil's advocate against both of us, because we're both going Makhachev here. But uh, just to look at if Moises had a route to victory, sometimes in the wrestling exchanges with Makhachev's combat Sambo background, the way that he scrambles to get back to his feet, occasionally similar to Khabib, kind of Dustin Poirier 2018 reminiscent, they leave their neck a little bit open. They expose their neck. So for a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, I think the idea there is to get a guillotine, get this fight from standing to the ground with your cage to with your back to the cage. Not the cage to your back, but realistically, I think Islam Makhlchev is just becoming too well-rounded of a fighter to not be considered for a much highly anticipated bout as opposed to fighting somebody on the back half of the top 15. However, he's cementing himself as a main card fighter as a central attraction in the division. So more props to the guy and big balls in Cowtown slam buzzer. He's winning. No doubt in my mind. All right. I agree with him a hundred percent. I guess my final point of breakdown here is that Islam Makachev, his, his timing is phenomenal. I think that's one thing that people don't talk enough about is his timing, the time people shot whenever they want to take a shot to his body, be a punch, kick, whatever. He times everything so well. He he gets a little feel for it, and whenever you try to, you know, pick apart a weakness on him, that's when he times his takedown and gets you down. 
is phenomenal to watch. Not many people can do it, and not many people talk about it. But his ability to see the openings and jump on them, literally, and take you down is what's going to separate him. Right? No, I absolutely agree. I'm sitting over here currently. I realized I'm on my computer, but my camera's not taken off of me. But putting together a little parlay for us for the weekend, because like I said, I only want one bet this weekend, and it is going to involve Islam Makachev, just because I'm that confident. But looking at my history, trace us back to the last to the last podcast if you like. Sean O'Malley money line minus eight twenty five. Sean O'Malley by KO TKO minus two seventy five. Thank you, Herb Dean. And then the fight doesn't go to decision minus four fifty. Also, thank you, Herb Dean. This is the first big money parlay that I've hit since we've started, so I'm pretty happy that my $300 wager turned into $560.60. So I almost covered my whole card last week with Makachev, or with Sean O'Malley. However, I'm that confident in Makachev that he's going to win that I'm going to base an entire parlay around him. So All right. what you got with that? I don't have anything. I think you're the fucking parlay genius. Parlays are fun. And is it time? Is it time? Oh, do you think it's time? It's I had a time. question for you that I did lose, but uh, the five. I got lost enough that I'm not going to load up five. Round five. Let's start it. Hold on. Hold on. I'm on a personal hotspot. That's what my blue is. But five minutes, only five minutes. And you ready to fight? Yeah, let's fight. Let's fucking fight. And go. All right, Zach, do you see any money to be made on the undercard this week? Um, ba 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 bum. Let me just look at it because one of the things we haven't mentioned is that there were this fight was supposed to be gas. This card was supposed to be really good, but it caught the injury bug. We lost Max versus Yair in the main event. And then there were a bunch of fights, you know, on the undercard. Abubakar and Amagadamadov pulled out. However, you know, I see value in minus 160 odds for Miles Johns. I like Francisco Figueredo. I haven't looked up the prop, but Francisco Figueredo by knockout excites me. And then... I like Rodrigo Nascimento. He's minus 325, and I'd also look into the prop for submission there. All right. Well, that's not where I was going with this question. I was going with Amanda Limos versus Maserat Ruiz Conejo. Um, I think plus 415 for Maserat is just too fucking tasty. The second best odds on the entire card. Maserat came out look, looking like a fucking demon last time out. And even though Amanda Limos is a fantastic fighter, fantastic striker, I think Maserat, man, she has an unstoppable move that she proved last time out. That scarfold, you know, headlock in the fucking ground and pound. She was unstoppable with that last time. And I loved what I saw. So, I mean, throwing $100 on that to maybe quadruple your money, that's tasty. No, that's absolutely value from a better's perspective, which is something I have to offer to the fans 
to those 14 of you out there who took my McGregor advice is that, you know, often there's somebody that I can pick because I'm picking Amanda Lemus. I think Lemus is going to, I told Gates that I was picking the opposite way. He soft tossed me that question for a reason. I'm going Lemus just because I think she can keep her on the outside just enough to win the fight. But from a betting perspective, like you said, the odds are just so tasty. And that scarf hold is so dirty. We've seen her ragdoll bitches in the opponent or in the octagon. So at the end of the day, do I want to take somebody that's almost minus 500? Absolutely not. Minus 455 is horrible odds. So at that point, I'd rather hedge another bet with my plus 415 odds, something that I'm more confident in. But, you know, that being kind of said, Amanda Nunes is coming up a couple of cards away. How long do you think we see her reign as champion, and what mark do you think she leaves on her division? Amanda Nunes is the greatest woman to ever get in the octagon. I think she cemented her legacy well past her last fight. I, I mean, I don't think see her losing. I think it's a John Jones esque um, kind of legacy without all the controversy. She's cleaned out an entire division, has reigned over two divisions longer than any other person, regardless of weight and gender, in any any uh, promotion. She's the best to ever do it, and nothing's going to change my mind. She makes people look like absolute fools out there. And, you know, I, there's no sense in betting against her until she proves us otherwise. She's really turned around her game be, after a few losses. She's just turned it on to another level. I don't know if she's taking Mexican supplements or where the fuck she's doing, but she's a bad motherfucker. No, I agree. I think the only shot we see... Her getting beat in. Oh, I can hear something squeaky. Eh, but Kayla Harrison, that's cross-promotional. Probably never going to happen. I don't know if Misha Tate still has the gas to get it done, but, you know, something in my head that's making a lot of sense right now, I think I tweeted it, if you guys follow me on Twitter, Z underscore Gleason 76. But at 155, if Islam Makhachev wins this fight, I see no reason to not give him a big top dog, a shark in the water. He's a main card, main event fighter at this point. Fight night. Islam Makhlachev versus Benil Darush in a main event at 155. I was going to say. Wrestlers, strikers, I think we're looking at somebody. Oh, damn, it's a draw. But I will hit you with a bullshit late punch and say, I don't think that whoever wins that fight can't go beat Charlie Olives or Dustin Poirier. But absolutely, any last minute thoughts? That absolutely to finish off what you said. But Neil Darius versus Islam Makhachev. Makhachev gets the win. It's huge. I think it does great. Um, and they fit, whoever wins that fights for the title. I think it's a great matchup. I agree completely. I absolutely agree. But, you know, this is the first time that I think we have, well, maybe not the first time, but we have more opinions that differ than we have opinions that agree. Um, Zach, zero nickname, Gleason. 
That's Gage, the headband Hamby. And this is another episode of the Cap King Experience signing out. Yeah.